Human government is man's attempt to recreate Eden and the environment of Eden without God, because in man's fallen state he doesn't want God, so human government is his way of trying to recreate everything that Eden represented, that paradise, without God. Every government you've ever heard of, that you've ever been a part of, has had that same goal, the godless Eden. It started at Babel, which obviously failed. And again, every government, every government philosophy, every political philosophy, every type of socioeconomic entity or theory that you've ever encountered, be it communism, capitalism, egalitarianism, oligarchy, technocracy, they've all had that same goal to recreate the godless Eden and they've all failed. And the primary reason that they fail is because these philosophies, these utopias all require the existence of something that is absolutely impossible. In this podcast, we're going to talk about what that impossibility is, why it dooms government to failure, and the fate of all governments in this week's uh, episode of the Faith by Reason podcast. Welcome to the podcast. The website behind it all, as always, is faithbyreason.net. If you are on faithbyreason.net, please subscribe. Just go into that right-hand navigation bar and type your email address in there, and you will get notified of new podcasts and new blogs whenever they come up. If you're on listening on iTunes or your mobile device, once you're done with the podcast, please go to the website and subscribe. I would greatly appreciate it. So we are winding down our series on the third dispensation on Babel. And the reason we've been spending so much time on Babel is because it's very important because it highlights all of our social structures. Every social structure that we experience currently started at Babel because Babel was the first organized community. And in the last few podcasts, we've been talking about organized religion, which hugely impacts you, whether you're secular or religious. The um, the organized religion and the mystics that run it impact your life. In fact, in the last in the last podcast, which I apologize again for it running so long, but in that last podcast, we talked about the mystics. These are the people who guard the secrets of religion and even any any other secular secret societies and things like that that really have the the power that the, the power behind the scenes that you know run governments and run the institutions that affect our lives deeply. And that's why the podcast was so long because I really wanted to make sure you have the understanding of who and what these mystics are. And I call the ones last week, the spiritual mystics, I call them obviously the, the mystics of spirit. And I call them that because they use spiritualism and these occultic secrets to amass and consolidate and um, limit access to their power so that they retain their power. They are technically the spiritual heirs of Semiramis, who started the first organized religion when she elevated herself and her family, Nimrod and her son Tammuz, to the level of godhood. And the mystics carried on that the idea of creating gods and rituals and whatnot that have continued on to this day in the various and sundry religions, even in Christianity, where a lot of these um, rituals that were created by men have nothing to do with God are used to subjugate and control and amass power for these mystics. And again, we talked about that last podcast, go back there and listen to that near hour long diatribe that I had on the mystics. And of course it also goes into the secular level where you have um, mystics in certain secret organizations and societies, um, you know, Masons and skull and bones. I talked about a few, a few of those and some of these um, high level families that all, keep and consolidate power by making sure that the masses, you and I, have no access to to the knowledge and the power that they have. And that's what makes them mystics. And they keep us in line through fear. So fear is the weapon 
um, that of the mystics that keep the vast majority of us who are the masses in line. So if the mystics of spirit are the heirs of Semiramis, well, who are the heirs of Nimrod? Nimrod was the dictator, the emperor, the very first dictator on earth. He has his own spiritual, his own spiritual heirs, and I call them the mystics of force. Instead of using um, threats of, of excommunication or threats of retaliation from the so-called gods in order to keep people in line, the mystics of force are also mystics because they use the exact they use the same weapon in a different way, but they use the same weapon as the mystics of spirit. The mystics of force also use fear. Fear is their weapon, their way of keeping you in line. But their the fear that they uh, put on people is not just you know fear of of being ostracized or fear of the so-called gods or even the fear of the God of heaven and of uh, the, the false fear of him disagreeing with you and, and being in opposition to you. If you happen to oppose the so-called men of God who you know, get in the pulpit with robes and say things that are completely anti-God and, and are completely antithetical to the Bible. And if you dare to disagree with them or criticize them, they claim that you're against God because as the Bible says, touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm, even though they are not anointed by God. They are not prophets of God. They are charlatans, but they use that fear to keep people in line. The mystics of force use fear to keep people in line, but their fear is much more, much more tangible. They, they uh, use fear of physical punishment, of wars, of denial of food, of incarceration, of physical punishment. That's what the mystics of force use. And in the Bible, these mystics of force are called kings. They are the people who create and run human government. And as I said, the purpose of human government is to recreate Eden without God. And in order to understand that, let's look again at what Eden was. We obviously did a series on Eden. You can go back there and check it out for more detail. But just to, to summarize, in Eden, you had God, Adam, and Eve. And that was a, a state of paradise. Why was it paradise? Because you had four things in perfection. You had perfect provision. By perfect, I mean complete. Complete provision. Adam and Eve had everything they needed to live. They had they could eat of all the trees of, of the garden that they wanted. It gave them perfect, perfect provision. They, they were wanting for nothing. They also had perfect fellowship with God. God walked and talked with them every day. They were in constant communication with the ultimate source of all knowledge, the perfect source of righteousness and justice. They were in com constant communication with God before the fall. They also had perfect fellowship with each other. Adam and Eve each had their role as husband and wife, and they were perfectly content in their roles and, and they supported each other and they did right by each other and they were perfectly happy with each other. And lastly, they had perfect authority over creation. God made Adam and Eve the king and queens of the earth. All of creation obeyed them. So they had perfect provision, perfect fellowship with God, perfect fellowship with each other, and authority over creation. And when the fall happened, when the serpent or the Nahash uh, tricked Eve into eating the forbidden fruit and Adam ate it after her and they fell from grace because they were comparative thinkers and and you know God judged them and he had he kicked them out of Eden. The problem is that man since then has wanted to get back to it. I did a an entire blog post and a podcast that I called Jonesing for Eden. And I meant that you know, as as it was written, as I said it, Jonesing, which is something that you know is is a slang for when you want a drug you're jonesing for that drug, you have a constant itch, a, a constant longing, a need to get that drug. But in jonesing for Eden represents man's 
constant longing, that constant itch to get back to that state of perfection, of perfect fellowship, perfect provision, perfect authority. We want that. It's, it's, it's in our DNA. It's in the depths of our heart. We all want that perfection. I mean, think about it. What would make you perfectly happy? What would make anyone perfectly happy if you had everything you needed? If you had all the money in the world to do whatever you wanted to do, whatever you wanted to do it, you could travel the world, you could eat the finest restaurants, drink the best wine, uh, have the biggest house, have all the cars you wanted. And if you combine that with a perfect fellowship with other people, when everywhere you went, everyone loved you and were, was happy to see you and invited you in and just talked to you and you just could just hang out with them and have a great time no matter where you went, that would be paradise. If we had all the things we wanted and we had perfect fellowship, that would be perfection. That's what we all want. We want to have our needs met and we want to love and be loved. If everyone had that, that would be paradise. And it's deep in our hearts to, ha to have that. We desire it greatly. And we want to have it on earth because we're fallen. We don't want it with God. I'm spoiling man doesn't want it with God. We want to have it on our own. And believe it or not, that is the ultimate purpose of government. Now, I'm no, I know it may sound a little odd thinking when you think about what some of the governments have been like, a lot of the, especially the tyrannical and dictator type governments, they still wanted those same things. They just wanted it for themselves. The people who are at the top wanted all the power, all the provision and by fellowship, I mean they wanted everyone to be forced to to love them and to like and you know to appreciate them. But that's well, really when you get down to it. That's really the point. Human gov of human government is to force man into the position where we have there's complete provision, complete fellowship, complete society, and complete authority. That's what human government is all about. And like every other social structure, it started at Babel. Babel was, even though it was highly flawed, obviously, it was the closest man has gotten and ever will get to creating that godless Eden. In Babel, what you have, you had a small society. It was only, what, three generations after Noah, you know, and because there were only nine people survived um, the flood, uh, Noah, his sons and their wives. And after three generations, you would figure that, you know, if they were all having babies pretty regularly, by the time of the height of Nimrod's government, you probably had a few thousand people, maybe around 10,000-ish people, so a small community. They were all of one mind. The Bible says very clearly that they all had that one purpose, you know, to, to build Babel. So they had a close to a perfect community. And, you know, they, they all provided for each other, each other, so they had provision. So you had the whole world united and of one mind. And that was the closest we've ever come to having an Edenic-type existence. But... Since they were fallen, their mindset was to go against God. And that's why they tried to build the Tower of Babel, the gate to God. And we talked about that in the uh, very first podcast on the on the third dispensation. You can go back there and check it out. And of course, Babel fell. God confused the languages and, and spread the people out across the earth. But that longing for Eden did not go away. So every government that that came from Babel, which is basically every government that's ever government that's ever existed has still tried to do the same thing as tried to imperfectly recreate Babel in order to recreate that Eden. Again, they wanted everyone to be of the same mind, to have the same purpose, the same goals for that provision, that community and that authority. And if you look at it from the philosophical standpoint, let's talk about philosophy. We'll talk about the philosophy of government first, then we'll get into the actual practical um, application. All government philosophies have the idea of creating a utopia where, again, man has all those Edenic qualities, 
perfect community, perfect provision, perfect authority. And let's look at the the, the two uh, political philosophies that kind of dominate our current time. That is uh, communism slash socialism. They're almost the same thing. It's been said that socialism is the retarded cousin of communism. And you also have capitalism, kind of laissez-faire capitalism. They're really represented by two of the great philosophers of each of each one of those uh, utopian type uh, uh, government entity, uh, government uh, philosophies. On the communist socialist side, you have a man named Karl Marx who lived a couple of centuries ago. He wrote you know tons of books. Uh, the Communist Manifesto being his most famous book where he talks about the communist utopia. And then on the capitalist side, you have a lady by the name of Ayn Rand, who I admire for her thought process. She actually turned out to be atheist, which was unfortunate. But by the way, that's something she and Karl Marx both have in common, that even though they're completely antithetical to each other uh, in in their political approaches, they they both agree that there's no God. Interesting thing there, even though, as we'll find out in a few minutes, their philosophies, in order for them to exist and function require the existence of God. And I'll explain explain what that means in just a second. So let's start with Karl Marx. Marx has brought forth the idea of communism and the the baseline uh, uh, philosophical statement of communism is this. It's uh, from each according to their ability to each according to their need. What does that mean? That means that in the communist utopia that Marx imagined, here's what the world would look like. Every one of us would work to our ability. We would do whatever it was we loved, whatever we were capable of doing, whatever we did really well. We would do it to the best of our ability, to the maximum of our ability, and then we would take from others according to what we needed. For example, if you were a doctor, if you if you love medicine, if that was your passion, then you would just practice medicine at, uh, to the utmost of your ability, you would go, you would heal everyone you could, you would administer medicine to everyone you could for free. You wouldn't charge anything for it, but you would just do it because you loved it. On the other hand, if you were a farmer, if you loved raising crops and, and animals, you would just raise as many crops as you could and, and as many animals as you could, and you would that you did to the top of your ability, and you would get what you need from someone else. If you were a mechanic, if you just loved working on cars, you would just do as many, you would work on as many cars as you possibly could because you loved doing it and you would take from others. For example, if the farmer would bring his car to you and you would just do it for free, you would fix his car for free. And on the other hand, when you were hungry, you would go to the farmer and you would get as much food, as, as much vegetables and meat as you needed. Then you were sick, you'd go to the doctor. The doctor would heal you in no charge. And then when the doctor was hungry, he'd go to the farmer. If he needed his car fixed, he'd go to the mechanic. If he needed a house built, he would go to people who just love building houses and he would just get one of the houses that they built because they would just build houses for free. And when, again, when they were hungry, they go to the farmer. If, and if, you, if you were a chef, if what you'd love to do was cooking, then you'd open up, open up a restaurant and you would just serve all your meals for free. And because you would get all your provisions from the farmer who would come to eat at your restaurant for free, you'd have engineers who just loved engineering stuff and they would make all the equipment for your kitchen for free and they would come and eat at your restaurant for free. So basically... There was no money. There's no government. We just do what we love to do and individually and, and from what we needed from other people, we would just take it from them as we gave to them. So from each according to their ability to each according to their need. And actually, if you think about it, it sounds like a pretty cool way to live. There's just one huge, gigantic problem in order for that society to work, it will require the existence of something that's impossible. Here's that impossibility I talked about at the beginning of the podcast. It will require human beings that are completely, perfectly moral. 
it will require human beings who were always and completely right and just. Why? Because in order to get, in order for society to work, you would have to only take from others what you needed and nothing more. And you'd have to work to the peak of your ability and nothing less in order for it to work. If anyone ever got lazy or greedy, the society would collapse. If that farmer decided, you know what? I'm not going to grow all the crops I, 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 I can. I'm just going to I'm just going to grow half the crops I normally would because I don't feel like growing anymore. But I'm going to get two houses from the house builder because I want a regular house and I want a vacation home. You know what? Society will collapse. That can't work because now you have an imbalance. If the doctor said, you know, I'm not going to take every patient I possibly can. I'll just take half the patients because I don't feel like doing that much. But when I go to the farmer for my food, I want more than it. I don't just want what I need. I want abundance. I want excess. It collapses. So the only way for communism to work is if everyone was completely moral and selfless and always worked to the maximum of their ability and always took only what they need and not a drop more. The problem is we human beings are not completely moral. We are greedy and we are lazy. Therefore, the society won't work. It would collapse. In fact, Ayn Rand, who was, again, a, a vocal and, and, and vigorous opposition of communism, wrote about what the what communism would look like under a, a, a immoral people in her her magnum opus, Atlas Shrugged, one of my favorite books, by the way, in the chapter called. Uh, hold on, let me look it up really quick. The chapter is called The Sign of the Dollar at the end of part two of Atlas Shrugged gives a very vivid and visceral and pretty graphic description of, again, what communism would look like under immoral people. And it was it's, it's brutal. It's pretty, pretty bad and stark stuff, but it makes absolute sense. You can't have you, you can't have communism or any form of government without absolute moral people. And I'm not let, letting Ayn off the hook because in her in her book again, Atlas Shrugged, she has a uh, the second the third part of her book it starts with a chapter called Atlantis, where she talks about her version of utopia, a capitalist utopia that exists in this fictional part of Colorado, a hidden enclave called Galt's Gulch, where you have all of the great capitalists of of that age, you know, living together in an absolute harmony, and. Ironically, it has a lot of things in common with the communist um, utopia in that there are no laws. There is a certain amount of cash, very little, though, because these people would charge you know nominal fees for what they did. But they all did what they loved and they all took from each other uh, based on their needs in, in abundance. And they, but they did it for for a small fee. So it but so believe it or not, when you look at Ayn Rand's utopia, it, it has certain similarities to Karl Marx's utopia. Again, that's some serious irony there. But the one thing that they both have in common is very interesting. They both require absolutely moral people. In order for Ayn Rand's capitalist utopia to work, you have to have people who were perfectly selfish. And I put selfish in quotes, and you have to read Ayn Rand's, some of her materials, understand what that selfishness means. But it means they were perfectly capitalistic. They were perfectly uh, moral in the way they did capitalism, just ha as as in Karl Marx society, everyone had to be perfectly moral in the way they executed communism. But the thing is, no human being exists perfectly moral. No human being is always and completely right and just. The only way a human being can be right and just is through salvation. When you are saved, 
you, you know, the spirit of God dwells in you, his Holy Spirit dwells in you. And when we are on the other side of, of life, when we're in heaven, that's when, when we will be per, always and completely right and just. And that's the only time society will actually work is during God's plan. So in the ultimate irony, these two uh, virulent atheists tacitly admit that the only way for their societal utopias to work and the only way for government to perfectly work is if human beings are saved, if they are always and completely right and just. So they it took them a while to, to discover, to figure out what God knew all along, which is that paradise can only happen if man is always and completely right and just and completely sinless. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they were sinless. And for however long that lasted, which probably wasn't very long, everything worked great. When Adam and Eve, before they sinned, they were they were in perfection. They walked with God. They were in fellowship with each other. They had all the provision. They were in paradise. But when they fell, when they were tempted by the Nakash, the serpent, and they fell from grace, what did God do? Did God try to say, okay, well, let's, let's try to make Eden work with imperfect people? No, he kicked them out of the garden and said, you cannot have Eden. I need to put my plan into place where I will bring my redeemer to save you. Genesis chapter three, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That is seed of the woman is one of the, one of the um, old Testament titles of Jesus of Nazareth, of our, of our Christ, of our Messiah. That's one of his titles, uh, uh, recognizing his virgin birth. He knew God knew that the only way for man to get back to the paradise that he wanted and that God wants for him was for a man to choose to be always a completely righteous and just through choosing, you know, getting through getting that from Jesus, man can't do it himself. But by self, when he chooses to to uh, take advantage of Jesus's gift, his his ultimate sacrifice, we are impugned with that righteousness, and that's how we can be with God. No other way. The problem is that all the philosophers, Ein and Karl Marx, and anyone else who comes up with any other philosophy for um, for a government, be it, you know Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, all all the different philosophers throughout existence who have come up with a theoretical way for man to live and govern himself perfectly, they all require the same thing, that perfect man, the the Ubermensch, um, according to to uh, Friedrich Nietzsche and to a degree Adolf Hitler. They all require that ultimate man who is always and completely right and just. The problem is that man cannot exist because it is not in our nature. We've talked about that in an earlier podcast on the nature of man. Man's nature is that he is not always and completely right and just. Therefore, he can never exist and operate a functional, perfect government. He cannot ever get that replacement of Eden. And so you would think if man was a contrastive thinker, he would realize, hey, you know what? This isn't going to work. We keep trying these governments over and over again. They keep failing because how, how, do, how does it go with the governments? I, I, let me just read a quote from the blog post um, that I have on the origin of government. Okay, this is from the, the blog post um, uh, called, again, The Origin of Government. Okay, there is an intrinsic reason why kings and clerics, the mystics of sports and the mystics of spirit can never successfully rule the masses. The desire to rule doesn't just exist in the few who appoint themselves kings and priests. We all share Adam's genetic predisposition. All men desire to rule. Thus, men will only succumb to the subjugation of the mind or, or from the sword by kings for so long. Then our inherent desire to be kings of our own world leads to rebellion against the rulers. In response, the mystics of force and spirit increase their tyranny. But that only increases the desire of men to throw off their yoke of bondage. 
Eventually, the masses rebel. There are civil wars, revolutions, or invasions. And then one government is, replaced by, is toppled and replaced by another, and a cycle of futility continues. Man's attempt to recreate Eden epitomizes that classic definition of insanity. In spite of his unbroken string of failure, man keeps trying over and over to create a government expecting a different result, and such is a result of the rampant brain damage that comes from comparative thinking. If man was willing to be contrastive, he'd admit the glaringly obvious fact that he cannot govern, him, govern himself perfectly, and only a perfect being could do so. And that kind of contrastive thinking could actually lead to world peace. And I talk about that in the uh, blog post, I'm sorry, yeah, in the uh, a podcast on how to be right. But man does not think contrastively. Man thinks comparatively. So what he does, he keeps believing that somehow he can make these government utopias work, even though man is not completely moral. How does he do it? He does it by trying to force man to be something that's outside of his nature. He tries to force man to be moral. How does he do that? Governments do it through laws. That's what all of our laws are all about. Laws are in place. Think about it. What, what, are, what are laws in place to do? They're in place to make you behave morally. Laws are in place to help you work through society. They're, they're in place to help you be uh, so they're there for social to be make you socially ad, to be socially advantageous to each other and to, to to get us in some type of facsimile of perfect fellowship. We but we rebel against them, even though the laws are in place. They don't stop us from being immoral. Every country has laws against murder. Murder is wrong. We know that murder is immoral. And they're all every country has laws in the books against murder. But people still murder. We know it's wrong to steal. Every society on earth has laws against stealing. Taking something that does not belong to you is theft. It's wrong, but people still do it. Laws cannot force us to be moral, but that's what laws are in place for. They're in place to force us to be moral. And why do we obey laws? Because of fear. Again, that's the mystic's weapon is fear. We're afraid that if we disobey laws, we will be put in jail or denied our rights or denied food or whatever. And when you get to some of the more tyrannical governments, if you don't, if you don't put act the way they want you to act, if you don't pray the way they want you to pray, especially in certain Islamic countries, if you don't dress the way they want you to dress, if you don't toe the line, if you don't do whatever the people who run the government think you need to do in order to recreate their version of Eden, they they uh, punish you and, and you do it out of fear for that punishment. Even when we talk about provision, we there's something we call taxes that basically take money from us to give to other people. Um, ostensibly in order to share our provision and to, you know, make people so that people who don't have enough have, have some food and, but we cheat on our taxes. And the more money you get taxed, the more you more likely you are to cheat. And I'm not here to talk about the morality of taxes. I actually think that um, in a, in a perfect world, we should you know contribute voluntarily to the poor and, and to people who, who are less fortunate, but the government takes money from us and the reason I have a problem with taxes is because most of that money doesn't go to help people. Most, most of the money goes to line the pockets of government officials and government projects. And they're earmarked to all these different things that, have, that do nothing to benefit society. They just uh, do. They just benefit the people who are in power. But the purpose of laws is, again, to force us to be moral when we can't be. And it's a, a continual cycle of failure. Every government always fails. And I mentioned the 
the, um, the fictitious communist government in Ayn Rand's book, but you can look at the at the real governments that are that are failing. You have Venezuela, which was a company, country that was oil rich, but they were also communists, and they've completely failed in the past couple of years. People are starving in that country. You know, you have the fall of the Soviet Union about thirty years ago, another communist country. Um, then you have China, who is supposedly communist, but they're not really because they have extremely wealthy people, and under communism, no one should be wealthy. So that government doesn't work. Our government here in America. When the government was started, and I will say this as an American, um, the, our founding documents are the closest we could ever get to a fair government. America was the first country that basically stated that just being by being born, you have certain rights you have that, that no one can take away from you, that they are God-given rights to your personal freedom. However, if you look at the country now, we have gotten so far away from that we are closer to a socialist tyranny than we are to the initial freedom. And that's not to say that the people who started this government were perfect. They weren't. I'm saying this is the closest that anyone has ever gotten our American philosophy to actually being fair. But again, we failed because we are not perfect. And we are, again, we are very far. If our founding fathers were alive today, they would recoil in horror at what this government has become. We are we are not free. We are one of the least free countries in, in the in the so-called free world. There's a saying that when the government fears the people, you have freedom. When people fear the government, you have tyranny. So let me ask you a question. If you got a knock on your door and the person who was at your door said they're from the government, what would you feel initially? Would you feel would you feel like, hey, you're going to intimidate this guy? Or would you feel fear? Eh, it's likely going to be the latter. That just shows how far we've fallen. Okay, so in summary, the reason that government, the reason for a government is to recreate Eden without God. Fallen man wants to have paradise without God. The reason that it fails is because that paradise requires perfectly moral, always and completely right and just human beings, and that does not exist. So I want to wrap this up by just relating the two types of mystics, the mystics of spirit and the mystics of force. They have always throughout history had a, a, a simultaneous adversarial and kind of psychophantic relationship. They both are vying for power, the power over the masses, over us, but they also need each other. If you've noticed throughout history, kings have always had mystics at their court. They've always had, you know, priests and shamans and clerics who've always worked with the mystics of force, with the kings. Why? Because it's just another way to keep us in control. They work together to keep control over us. The mystical spirit keeps us in control by saying that disobeying the king is like disobeying God. And, some, and many times like the king is often elevated to the level of a god. And on the other hand, the, the mystics of spirit rely on the mystics of force to give them their material wealth and to use their laws to keep people in line. So you have to obey the laws because God says so. And because if you don't do it, you're going to go to jail or get punished or get hanged or have your provision taken away from you or having your, your food restricted or whatever. And that's how they've always worked together. And again, the one thing they have in common is that they keep failing. And the reason that they always fail, there are two reasons they always fail. Number one, as, we've, as, as I've said over and over again, the society requires men to be perfect and completely moral, which we are not. But there is another very important reason that governments always fail is because they require one other thing from us. Actually, they require us to suppress one other thing that's in our nature, and that is our individualism. You cannot rule over individuals, and every law that's ever in the books is in place to do one thing, to suppress our individualism. There is a reason 
that you cannot rule individuals. And we're going to talk about that in the next podcast. In the next podcast, we're going to go over that one aspect of humanity, that individualism, that uniqueness that keeps us from ever being able to be ruled by other men. But interestingly and ironically, that individualism, that uniqueness is the one thing that is required from us in order for God to rule over us. God requires our individualism and our uniqueness in order for his plan, his perfect government to function. And again, on the other hand, man's government requires a suppression of that uniqueness, which can never happen, which is, again, one of the other reasons why men fail. And we're going to talk about that in the next podcast when we wrap up the series on Babel. So thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Um, I haven't, didn't go over quite as much in time-wise as I did as I did last time. I think we're at like 33 minutes, so we should wrap this up um, for that. Again, thank you for listening. Uh, again, subscribe to the podcast. Um, follow me on social media. And I will talk to you next week when we wrap up the series on Babel and talk about individualness and uniqueness and our greatness and why we are all kings in our own right and how that's exactly the way God wants it 